Hey guys, Jim Cox, Devon Financial Partners, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with an interview with Gabe Ignetti. Um, he runs a podcast called Eco Modernist um, Podcast, and I've seen some of his recordings and listened to, and we've chatted some, and we've I've listened to some of his uh, information, and. You know, I think uh, today's uh, podcast is going to be, uh, you know, a little bit uh, controversial, I guess, in the fact that he and I don't agree on everything, and um, in that regard, it might be entertaining, but I think it's good to kind of hear different uh, points of view on uh, topics regarding kind of uh, technology, society, and uh, climate change. So, Gabe, I appreciate you taking the time to chat. Awesome. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, background, uh, Gabe. What What's your background? What have you done? And uh, you know, what do you do? Okay. Well, I am a retired teacher. I'm a former labor leader. I'm uh, I've been vice president of the Central Labor Council in the Virgin Islands many years ago. Uh, a long time environmental activist. I was a former uh, Green Party leader in Miami, where I live. I have been a founding member of 350 South Florida, which is an affiliate of 350.org, and I'm still on their board. I'm probably the only person on uh, the 350, uh, one of the few, few people in, in the 350 leadership, though I'm kind of far from the big guys who uh, actually support Spiklia Power. Um, support what? What? Support what? I didn't catch that. Uh, nuclear power. Nuclear, nuclear okay. power. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, what, that's one of our differences. And I'm also an eco-modernist, so let me explain what that means. Yeah. E- eco-modernism is, is basically a nascent movement uh, that is built on the belief that modernity and ecology are not mutually, ex- mutually exclusive. And the idea that man's return to nature that is so much of a prevalent view in the environmental movement is actually a false narrative. Hmm. And uh, we believe that a returning to nature is uh, a, uh, a withdrawal from, okay, let me put this, let me rephrase that. We believe that rather than withdrawing from nature, that what needs to be done is to have an accelerated scientific advancement and the, uh, and Modernity needs to be the solution rather than the problem. And so that's what we call ourselves eco-modernists, it's ecology and modernity. And the, the thing is this, I mean, reversing population growth, I mean, we've, it's just one area. I mean, because like people think that if we just go back to nature and that we do things to uh, in the environment and uh, the uh, uh, population problem that that could be done together but the fact of the matter is is that it is in urban areas where the population decreases and where it stabilizes and it's in places where people are in so-called harmony in nature which really doesn't exist pretty much that the problem exists. You have very large family because peasants uh, need to have a lot of 
children in order to in order to uh, produce food. Whereas in an urban environment, people prosper when there are less children that they have to take care of. And so, you know, that's pretty much uh, our view. We are different from the mainstream environmentalist movement that we are more based on uh, a scientific approach to ecology. Uh, we are uh, pro-nuclear. Uh, pro-nuclear has actually been shown to be the safest form of energy production, believe it or not. And that's backed by fatality data worldwide and supported by the World Health Organization. Uh, GMOs, we support that. And uh, we both, uh, we believe that those are both technologies that are dire necessity in the, in the, if we were to overcome the problems of climate change and other problems too. For example, uh, we have mosquito problem in uh, South Florida and uh, actually around the world. It's the biggest killer of humans and it's the greatest vector for diseases. And uh, GMO mosquitoes, which are opposed by uh, environmentalists, maybe not all, but I haven't heard, you know, uh, environmental organizations saying otherwise. I mean, they, uh, that's actually held, held back the, um, you know, the, uh, get the, the process of getting rid of certain strains of mosquitoes. And you could go on to, uh, in terms of GMOs, you could go on to thinking about how GMO crops have been designed, a lot, not all of them, but some of them have been designed to be drought resistant, to be heat resistant. And I mean, these are the problems that we're gonna be facing more and more in trying to adapt in terms of climate change as well. Well, let's, and, hold on, let's, uh, I mean, you bit off like five, huge topics there so let's let's uh <laughs> let's yeah, chat let's about let's chat about a couple of them um you know i uh let's just start with uh the with nuclear um you know my my work in uh, what i do is i do socially responsible investing and you know i try to help clients match up their investments with their values so part of that approach is really taking carbon to the greatest extent possible out of you know what's going on in terms of a client's investments now there are investments where obviously you know uh, utilities uh, there's there's one utility that has a tremendous amount of of wind in its portfolio it's almost gets half of its energy from wind which is, I think, a beautiful thing, and I'm very supportive. You know, on the other side of that same company, they also have a couple of nuclear power plants. Now, I recognize that for some clients, you know, that's not acceptable, and they're not going to want that in their portfolio. By the same token, I recognize that some clients are looking at the bigger picture and don't mind that. But... You know, when you look at nuclear energy, I think it's important to recognize, you know, the legacy issues of disposing of the waste that comes with the nuclear plants. And, um, I mean, how do you address nuclear waste, which 
is, you know, hugely toxic and um, lasts for generations that, you know, how do we deal with the continuous generation of that kind of waste that's really not disposable? Okay. Well, in the first place, it is disposable in the best kind of way. 96% of what is referred to as nuclear waste is actually reusable. And that's reusable in advanced reactors. In fact, they have one that's already been built in Russia. I believe that they just, you know, they, they burn waste. And I shouldn't use the term burn because nuclear power plants don't burn anything, but that's a misnomer. But just to show you what I mean, um, there's enough power that's embedded in nuclear, in spent fuel, that is, not nuclear waste. I, I don't even call it waste. Uh, there's enough spent fuel in that to power the planet for over 700 years. The uh, There's advanced reactors that are going to be coming online in China as uh, test reactors, and they're called molten salt reactors. And the molten salt reactor goes way back to the 1950s. They've been well tested, and they actually work already. They've been known to work for years. It's just, you know, these things are, you know, they, they want to get it so it's, it's more economical and things like that. And so in the future, that's going to be a source of fuel. And not only a source of fuel, it's a source of uh, fuel for space exploration as well, which is very rare. You know, it, it's very hard to, to find that fuel, and you could get that out of reactors. Uh, medical, medical, uh, you know, atomic medicine. There's a lot of very expensive and rare stuff in the so-called nuclear waste that is used and can be used in in medicine and. The last thing is is that there's no people there's no there's no evidence of anybody being hurt or any part of the environment if as a matter of fact being hurt by nuclear spent fuel. Hmm. It just it's a non existent problem. I mean the amount of fuel on the whole planet that it, the amount of spent fuel on the whole planet that exists can fill up a football field, uh, and you can still see the uh, goalposts. You got to remember that nuclear power is like the is the power of an atomic bomb, even though it's not dangerous. But it's that kind of power. I mean, it's a million times more potent in terms of energy than fossil fuels. So the waste is uh, a million times less, and it, it, it's solid. So. It, it's one of these things that can be uh, kept safely. And as far as the time goes, I, I believe, I think it's in 300 years that the actual radioactivity reduces to the amount where it's equal to uranium, which is actually a natural element. It, there's no danger to it whatsoever. Well, I mean, that's not my understanding. My understanding is it takes thousands of years for it to get to some level of, you know, survivability. And, you know, I think one of the 
huge issues around nuclear power is um, really climate change and the effect that a lot of nuclear power plants are basically located near the sea, near the ocean, near waterways for cooling. And when you're looking at sea level rise and more importantly, I think severe storm risk, I think you're, you're looking at some really important safety issues in the future. I mean, you look at what happened with Fukushima, um, you know, to have something like that occur not once in a lifetime, but multiple times. I mean, that, that's kind of important, don't you think? Anytime you have an accident in any industry, and accidents are inevitable, it's a bad thing. However, Fukushima produced zero casualties from radiation, and it's not even a case of uh, you know anybody uh, getting uh, sick. I mean, in the general population from it, so it's uh, really overrated. You have to remember one thing about uh, atomic energy. Everything in the Earth is radioactive. We, the, the very core of the Earth and the, is, is super radioactive. Uh, the, uh, like when you speak about nuclear, nuclear waste, so-called, you are kind of, there's an underlining assumption that any amount of radiation is bad. And that, that's the problem with, with that analysis. The amount of radiation, and this has been proven from all the way they've studied this ever since the uh, atomic blast in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the aftermath, they've studied the people, all the people who were in those blasts and seen the effects over the years. And they're, they found that the, it's not been as nearly as bad as, as originally thought. The Okay, the, there is a, a base on which, if you pass it, there is a danger of getting sick. That is 100 millisieverts. And the basis for uh, getting sick, let's say, in an emergency, in the short term, is 500 millisieverts. And that is way, way below what emanates from nuclear waste, or even emanated from uh, Fukushima in, in, in great parts of it. And I'm, I'm not saying all of it, because there's certain areas in there, and, but uh, most of Fukushima people are, are back, you know? It's, uh, you know, they're living their lives normally. It's, it's really been overrated. Another thing, too, I mean, we've been finding out that it's even less dangerous and we thought, I mean, the World Health Organization, when Chernobyl happened, which is really the mother of all nuclear accidents, uh, when that happened, they assumed that 4,000 people would be getting cancer. Now, 30 years later, they found no evidence of cancer. So they had to reverse that position. And by the way, the 4,000 was an extremely conservative position, which they were criticized for even having. So... It's really not a problem. I, I have to imagine that there are going to be plenty of people listening to this that are going to contest those facts. Um, I, 
I don't know. That doesn't sound logical to me. Maybe it's my hippie nature, but um, I uh, I don't know. We'll have to look into that more, but uh, I would be interested in your sources where you're getting that information, if you could have those. Well, uh, the sources are all over the place. What I would suggest to, to you and to the listeners is that just Google it up. You know, just just go do. It's, it's just a matter of typing it up on Google nowadays, and you could find uh, the you know you could find the information pretty easily. Okay. You know, one of the other uh, topics you brought up is uh, GMOs um, and the fact that GMOs are 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 safe. You know, a lot of people would say that GMOs are, from a health perspective, human health perspective, largely untested. Um, what, what's your point, what's your, uh, argument there? Well, I would say this, they've been around 40 years. It has been, been thousands and thousands of tests on them. There's never been any evidence of GMOs hurting people or at all, you know, and even in terms of the environment, uh, they're, you know, actually, they've been shown to be uh, a boon to the environment because the purpose of uh, GMOs has been to, not always, I'm not going to say always, I mean, sometimes it's cosmetic things, but the, uh, the purpose of GMOs has been to reduce the cost of, uh, for the farmers, get, you know, fighting the diseases and plants, using less pesticides, and, um, you know, these, these are all good things. I mean, I believe, I believe there's, like, there's like millions and millions of cars. I believe, and I might be wrong about this, like the uh, CO2 that was saved by the use of GMOs has been like 5 million, the equivalent of 5 million cars taken off the road because uh, it's just, you know, it, when, the, uh, when you produce a crop, that is more successful, it requires less farmland, okay? And uh, so the thing that you're saying over here about, well, it's not tested enough. I mean, that could always be, that argument could always be made, no matter what, because logically you could never disprove a negative. You can't say that it's not safe. That's why I said there's no evidence of it being safe, of it being dangerous. That's all a scientist could say. So no matter how much research is done, you could always argue that we need more. But the thing is this, you gotta weigh the good against the unknown unknowns, and that's what we're really talking about. And humans are hardwired to be concerned about the slightest dangers that don't even exist. Because think about it, uh, primitive man, you know, if, if you are, are living in a primitive environment and you're, you know, in the Olympic era, or even, even if you're living in the Amazon, let's say, you hear some rustle in the bushes, you don't know what it is. And you are hardwired, there's, there's a tendency for us to immediately assume that that is a predator. 
Because if we say, well, maybe it might be a predator, maybe it might not be, we're going to get killed. However, in modern society, those that those inordinate fears uh, keep us from having the boldness to move forward and, and deal with the, the problems that we have. Well, one of the one of the challenges I think to using GMO crops is really the the fact that you get into, you know, um, less crop diversity in in areas and the you know, my understanding of agriculture is if you have more diversity in crops in a given area, you have more resistance and kind of natural integrity to the crops themselves. So the fact that, you know, GMO crops, they might be more hardy in terms of temperatures, you know, solve one problem, but in the process, you know, create another. But I would ask you, why is that a problem? Because, I mean, I, I could agree with you on that, but how does that say that you cannot have GMO papaya growing and other things growing around it that are different, for example? I mean, I don't see... I don't see connection well I don't think that from a GMO perspective I think it's a matter of how the genetic material ends up in the human body getting processed and we're not I don't think that that's been you know my perspective adequately looked at from looking at health outcomes I just don't think the money's been put into that that's my perspective um, one of the other points would be, you know, is my understanding is um, Monsanto's use of uh, glyphosate in terms of um, using that in crops as a way to deal with um, disease, you know, that's an example of a GMO, correct? All right. I mean, glyphosate has been shown to have negative carcinogenic health effects by international bodies around the world, correct? From what I understand, yes, but that is only from the point of view of, of being dangerous in use to the workers, okay? And that applies to even fertilizer. So if a worker is protected, they don't have to worry. But and and I've heard horror stories. But and I don't, you know, I don't dispute it. But you know, workers need to be working in, in proper working conditions. Well, I, and I, under, I understand yeah. that. But I mean, if the glyphosate is in, it's not a matter of applying it to the plant. It's inside the plant. And if the plant ends up inside the body, then you're having glyphosates inside the body, human body. Yes. From what I understand, and I've been told by some experts that I interviewed on, on my own podcast, I mean, they, they uh, said that there is no more danger than table salt. Hmm. Really? Yes, and 
that is a danger. Because, let's face it, I mean, I have high blood pressure, and uh, I know at my age, I'm 70, uh, and like table salt, I gotta watch the amount that I use. But we need salt in our body as well. So, I mean, it's a matter of the dose. And if there is, the question you have to ask is, is it, is it a dangerous dose because it's extremely low level? And does it bioaccumulate? Like in other words, lead or mercury will bioaccumulate. Then you get a small dose and it'll accumulate in your body and you'll get sick. But there's no evidence of glyphosate accumulating like that in the body. It just leaves the body. So it's my, my understanding from talking to MIT researchers is that there is that research that it does build up in the body and it has negative consequences. Well, uh, you know, that's, uh, there are different studies, you know, there did, you know, like it, uh, one study could say one thing and another study could say another because they, they could be peer-reviewed and everything. I mean, causality yeah. does not necessarily equal causation. True. True. You know, so, hence my uh, hence my argument that I think a lot more research is required, you know, to really evaluate what's being done to go into human bodies, you know, around the world. It's, you know, we're not the fact that there's not more being done in terms of research before these things are released or used. Not just GMOs, but I'm, you know, in terms of I would say corporate culture you know, I think is um, very negative for, you know, people as a whole. You know, I think there needs to be more done. Well, I would, I would dispute it in two terms here now. The assumption that if it's bad, that the corporations would want to hide it and that they wouldn't want to find out themselves because uh, let's face it, if you have a product that's killing people and the science is showing that, the, uh, the, the corporation, it, it, it's a black eye on the corporation. Well, so we, would, we know that from history, whether it's in terms of tobacco or in terms of you know, climate change with you know, some of the oil companies. You know, they did the research, they found what happens, and they still went on to hide the truth or the reality from the consumers, right? Yeah, I agree with you. I I agree with you. I know that exists, and it always exists. But what I'm trying to say is this. If I'm a fossil fuel company, my bottom line depends on me putting down climate change. And by the way, it also depends on me putting down nuclear power, which they have a history of doing. You know, they have funded anti-nuclear activism and they've funded anti-nuclear research. Okay, they have a history of that going right up to the present. And, but it's a different animal. If let's say I'm an apple grower, okay? Uh, And there is some kind of a pesticide that I'm using and it's found that that pesticide is killing people. People's 
stop buying apples. I don't need that particular pesticide. That's, that is a reverse. It hurts my bottom line. So that's what I'm saying. That's true, except for the fact that, you know, if that pesticide use is spread out and the research is not done to connect the dots, then the business gets away with that. And I think that's that's my challenge in terms of, you know, kind of what's what's being done and what has been done historically is that social costs have been pushed off the balance sheet of companies and onto society, you know, and they haven't been accounted for in terms of the bottom lines. Like, uh, you look at the FDA, I mean, you, I can't just create a pesticide and put it out there without it being researched and approved by the FDA. And like I would repeat again, I don't want to go around in circles, I mean, it's, the, uh, it's in the interest of the growers who are the consumers themselves that there'd be a good firewall to protect them. Remember, uh, the apple, the agricultural companies are consumers of the pesticide. They want those protections for their own use. And I'm kind of repeating myself. There's another uh, dimension in this conversation that is kind of missing, and I'd like to point that out. Go ahead. In In terms of glyphosate, it's a natural product, the method that it uses is to attack bugs in a way that doesn't affect human beings because bugs have a different kind of tolerance. In fact, even animals have a different tolerance completely than humans. There are animals that you could test um, arsenic on and they eat a ton of it and nothing will happen. Now you give that, that thing to a human and it it won't, you know, it, it'll be a far different outcome. So what, what a lot of these pesticides, like, you know, that, well, like glyphosate, uh, with that is what it does is it's attacking, it's attacking the bug in a way that doesn't affect the human. And if you were to take away hypothetically the glyphosate, in order for that massive that crop to keep growing, you still have to use a pesticide, and the pesticide would be more toxic. And even in organic food, we think even with organic food that they don't have pesticides, but they do. And the thing is, because they are called natural, okay, the the pesticides, which they are, it doesn't mean they're not toxic. In fact, there's a lot of extremely toxic pesticides that are used in organic, and as a matter of fact, There's no evidence that organic food is any more healthy than the the food that we usually eat. Really? Yep. Organic is no healthier than processed food. There's no proof of it being healthy. Okay? However, I will say this. Let's say if you have, and I don't know, I mean, I'm going into area that I'm no expert on, but... If you were to hyper, uh, what do they call that? Where they don't, uh, where they like you know, like in vertical farming, I'm missing, I'm forgetting the word hyper hydroponic. Hydroponic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, hydroponic. If you were to use hydroponics to 
you know, to grow your organic food that might be healthier because there there's no pesticides that I know of that they use, or if they do, it's extremely, extremely small. Hmm. Well, that's that's a different point of view. Um, we're actually we're getting down to the end of it. I wanted to ask you one one final question that it um, you know if you look at you started off the conversation talking about population and I, I don't want to go that down that rabbit hole but I think the challenge is really um, it's not technology use but I think it's the challenge of consumerism driving the economy and it's I think that's the main fact that we're driving an economy based on the fact that we're consuming three planets, you know, a year of raw materials, and that's simply not sustainable. Like, what's what's your view on that? Well, I actually agree with you about overconsumption, uh, not consumption as a whole, because people there's things that. You know, people need, I know, you know, women uh, love to go shopping and I don't want to be a chauvinist here, but they'll come back and they'll buy the fifth pair of, of shoes because they got it on sale and you never wear them, you know. So I, I agree with you there. But as far as sustainability goes, I mean, I, you know, in terms of population and technology, that intersection, mm-hmm. the acceleration in technology allows for larger amounts of population growth to be sustained. Uh, I remember when uh, Paul Enrich, you, really, you know what I'm talking about, the population bomb? Yep. He made dire predictions in the 70s about mass starvation in England, in Britain, and that was just one of them. And the night, this was supposed to have happened in the 1980s. And the thing that happened was the Green Revolution, and by the way, GMOs, which have helped with that, and we're able to grow a lot more food, and that problem didn't work out. Uh, fiber optics, uh, they, they said that uh, the Club of Rome, they made a prediction that we would run out of copper by now. And it hasn't happened because the fiber optics were invented, which we couldn't even imagine at the time. And so there's not that much, you know, uh, copper that's necessary. And so this is like, you know, technology evolves to deal with problems of, um, of shortages. And we have the, uh, in the future, we will have the ability to get a lot of those resources right from space, which is infinite. You know, asteroid mining is... it's in the distant future, but not that far away. Uh, NASA had originally had plans that they cut just because of the cost to bring uh, a near-Earth asteroid around uh, into orbit around the moon. And there's one asteroid, uh, I believe it's called Eros, you could look it up, that has more platinum than the entire planet. And, you know, there's uh, another one that has more gold, uh, more uh, gold than the entire planet. And there's um, one as- another asteroid. And, like, there's another asteroid that has more iron and nickel than exists on the entire planet. There's so much materials out in space. So, I mean, that really uh, is, like, one example of how 
things can change. But the last thing I would say is that the urbanization of and the you know the coming of people out of poverty has actually reversed the population growth in in lot in big parts of Europe. It's below two. That which means that, like for example, in Italy, the population is actually declining, and is it's not the only place. And that that most likely will be a trend as we become more prosperous. Well, I, I think the challenge, though, in terms of population is, and I, I agree that technology makes it possible to become more efficient and to solve problems and to get really to the next level. The challenge, though, is can technology advance fast enough with what we're facing, which is really much more elevated temperatures, because we, we've gone basically from... 1 billion people to 8 billion people within 100 years. And with that kind of exponential growth, you know, you've seen a massive rise in terms of, you know, what's happening with greenhouse gases and what that's going to do to temperatures on the planet within the next 10, 20, 100 years. And it's not going to be positive for crops. So when you look at like the impact of temperatures and kind of feedback loops, you know, I think you're looking at some pretty major issues that maybe, you know, science is only going to be able to overcome in to a limited extent. I mean, obviously there are solutions small on a smaller scale, but you know, for 8 billion people, I don't think it's sustainable. I wouldn't argue with that, actually. You would argue with that? No, I'm, I would not, actually. Okay. I, uh, and that's my personal opinion. There, you know, there are ecomodernists who would disagree with me. It's not, you know, that's just my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, it, it is a problem, but it, it is not the worst problem that we have. I think uh, getting rid of the fossil fuels and uh, reversing our, our, um, our CO2 footprint uh, those are super uh, important problems, and, and technology really is the key to it. It's, all of this is a, techno- is a technological problem, really. Uh, it's a matter of political will. I mean, I don't care if, you, if you're talking about windmills and, and solar panels or nuclear or anything. These are all technologies. Yeah. So it, is, it, it, it's, it does revolve around technology. It's just a matter, again, of political will. Understand. If um, people want to uh, listen to your uh, podcast and learn more about your uh, your views and so forth, where can they get some information? It's very easy. Echo, which is E-C-O, modernist, all one word, echomodernistpodcast.org. And they go to our website. Uh, we have, by the way, some very interesting people. We have, uh, we've had Mark Linus, who's a leading author. Uh, Richard Rhodes, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, is going to be, uh, we're planning on having uh, in the near future. We've had um, uh, Franklin Chang Diaz, Hall of Fame astronaut, uh, many uh, award-winning p- people, and uh, trend-setting people in the academics and in journalism and film. Uh, I think you all would find it very interesting. Sounds good. Um, you know, we've um, kind of reached the limit of the program, but I know we'll have to uh, we'll have to do more. We'll have to uh, chat some more in the future. Yeah, I love it. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Gabe. I'll talk to you soon. And thank you.